or somebody upstairs, the batteries run out. I always think, what's the battery runs out in the middle of my sermon? Then what do I do? Throw one down from the top, I guess. Um, grab a mic. It's happened before, believe me. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but uh, there have been times in my life where I had an opportunity to speak for Christ and I didn't say anything. You ever had that happen? Oh, yeah, you probably not you. We've read about people back east who are like that. You know, God's providence kind of gives you this slow pitch opportunity to share the gospel. It's coming at you. Here he is. He's, he said, you know, I've just always wondered how I, how you get saved and we're seeing it come and we go. And then when it finally gets to us, we go, how about the weather we've been having lately? Archbishop Cranmer, during the English Reformation, when he was faced with either standing up for the truth of the gospel or aligning himself with the falsehoods of the Roman Catholic Church, chose to lie, say he believed a lie because he didn't want to lose his position, his power, his influence, his reputation and be thrown into prison. We know that Peter, after Jesus was arrested and was being uh, cruelly treated, was watching from a distance. And when somebody came to him and asked him if he knew Christ, he said, no, no. And then said, no, with swearing, cursing, profanity, he denied him three times. He denied Christ. And there are times when we do the same thing. We really play the hypocrite in a backwards way because we just pretend to be unbelievers because we deny Jesus. I mean, what will people think of us when they find out that we're Christians? You know, we go to Calvary Bible Church with that psychotic preacher (laughs) who believes the Bible. You know, that church is the church that teaches that God created the earth in six literal 24-hour periods. You've got to be kidding I mean, they actually think that wives need to submit to their husbands. That fornication and adultery and stealing and lying are sins. (laughs) And these are the kind of things that we know they do. And they know that we know that they do those things. And when you're sitting at lunch and you're talking and there's that perfect opportunity, sometimes you don't say anything. You're sitting on a plane with somebody. I mean, it's only for six hours. And after the flight, neither person on either side of you knows that you're a Christian. But man, you've talked about everything but Jesus. I mean, it's really hard not to talk about Jesus for that long. You got to work at it. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus is going to teach us that dead fish naturally float downstream. They go with the current. Live fish, they swim against the current. And he wants us swimming against the current of our fears, of what might happen to us, even in the face of persecution. Now, as we turn to Luke 12, we've been here many times. It's familiar territory. Jesus, the Messiah, is trying to seek and save sinners who don't want to be sought out and found. 
He has just walked away from severely offending the religious leaders at a lunch meeting, which was more like a trap to try and catch him. He offends them and then just walks away from them. And the end of chapter 11 says they're hostile and they're running after him, you know, barking out questions. He's just ignoring them. Outside is waiting a huge multitude that's so giant it says people were stepping on people. They're just stepping on each other. They can't even, there's, you know, thousands. And there is his group of disciples who are kind of there all clustered together in their little holy huddle. And Jesus decides to address the disciples. The first thing he says is, see those guys behind me? Watch out for their hypocrisy, because it'll damn you to hell. And he says, don't fear man, but fear him who is able to cast both body and soul into hell. And so Jesus is offending the crowds. He's offending the religious leaders even more. And here are the disciples sitting in the midst of these hostile people. And they're scared. I mean, understandably so. The religious leaders had a lot of power and influence in the Jewish society. And to go against the religious leaders was just unheard of. You just did what they said. They were in control of the Jewish community. You go against them, you're in trouble. You go against them and you go against the whole crowd because you're associating with the guy who says the whole crowd is going to hell. Then you start wondering, I wonder what's going to happen to me. I wonder if they're going to boycott my business. I wonder if I'm going to lose my status in the synagogue. I wonder if they're going to, my family's going to reject me. I wonder if my friends are going to reject me. I wonder what's going to happen to me. And so they're fearful and Jesus sees the fear in their eyes. And so in verses four through seven, he says, don't fear them. Even if they kill you, fear God who can kill you and cast you into hell. He says to give them some encouragement. Listen, you know who takes care of the sparrows? God does. You know who has the hairs of your head numbered? God does. And listen, you're worth more than a lot of sparrows. And if God knows the details of your hair, then he knows the details of your whole life. He's going to take care of you. Don't worry. And so our text comes right after that. They're still surrounded by the hostile people. And Jesus is going to address the fear of man all the way down through verse 32. So follow along as I read verses 8 through 12 of Luke chapter 12. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the son of man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. And when they bring you before synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. But the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, from this portion of Luke, Jesus gives you three encouragements and two warnings so you can have courage and be a strong witness for Christ, even in the face of persecution. 
So the first is, be encouraged. If you confess Christ to men, he will confess you before the angels of God. Look at verse 8. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men. The word confesses means to say the same thing. It means to declare publicly, openly, to not be ashamed. It is an active tense which describes an ongoing confessing of Jesus as the normal pattern of your life. It is the same thing that we read in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is this verbal public recognition that you have aligned yourself with Jesus. He is your Lord and you are his servant. Jesus is not talking about talking to other Christians about Christian things. You know, anybody can come into the holy huddle here on Christ, uh, on Sunday morning and uh, hang around other Christians. And as you're here, you're talking, you're, you know, this is kind of religious turf. So it's safe. You know, when people come into my office, you know, this is one good thing about being a pastor. Um, I sit in my office all week and I'm surrounded by a bunch of believers. But people, unbelievers actually make appointments to see me. Now, I got to be religious. I'm a pastor. So when they come in, they get the gospel. The question is, what do I do when I go out and I'm not in safe territory? What do you do when you go out and you're not here singing hymns and listening to sermons and talking about God? What do you do out there? Among the unbelievers. This is what Jesus is talking about. What are you going to do. About Jesus. Before unbelievers. If we're going to call ourselves Christians. And followers of Christ. And Christ our Lord. Says we need to love him. And we need to love him by loving other people. And what the loving thing to do is to tell them the truth. And share the gospel with them. Then of course that is what we are going to do. I mean, you'd warn somebody if they were standing in the street and didn't see a car coming. You go, hey, there's a car coming. You wouldn't just stand there and watch the car come and hit him. I know you wouldn't. I mean, you couldn't be that cruel. And yet everybody's in danger. Everybody's born into this life in danger, aren't they? We're all born into this life in danger and Most people don't even know they're in danger. And so somebody's got to tell them. And the people who know what the danger is are Christians. It's normal Christian behavior to be confessing Christ. And so what if you do that? What if you are looking for opportunities, praying for opportunities, taking the opportunity to share the gospel with people? What then? Look at the middle of verse 8. The Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God. Confess you as what? Before the angels of God is the question. Confess you as his, as a believer, as a joint heir, as a brother, as a sister, as one who will rule and reign with him forever. In a similar text in Matthew, Jesus says he will confess those who confess him before his heavenly father. And where Jesus is, where the heavenly father is, so are the angels. I mean, think about that. Is that kind of cool or what? 
I mean, there is Gabriel, the one who stands in the presence of God. And there is Michael, the archangel, the the super angel protector of Israel. And there is the multitudes of heavenly hosts, thousands times ten thousands and myriads upon myriads of them. And then there you are. And Jesus calls you forward and says, do you see such and such a one? They are mine. I have saved them. I have called them. The Father has given them to me. They will rule and reign with me forever and ever. That is kind of cool, isn't it? That is really good. I don't know about you, but that I can't wait for that. That is great. Jesus is wanting us to remember this when we're tempted not to confess him. That those who do confess him will be confessed before the angels of God. And think about how foolish it would be to spend a few years denying Christ so you could have approval from the children of hell. And then go to hell with them because you didn't want to speak for Jesus. Wouldn't that just be idiotic? Wouldn't that just be foolish? And then that's what we do. That's what we do sometimes, isn't it? When I was in Scotland, I was able to visit St. Giles, which is this gorgeous church. It was where Scottish preacher John Knox pounded the pulpit. And John Knox was a Roman Catholic priest who came to Christ. They don't even know all the details, but when he showed up on the scene, he was serious. Somewhere he got the idea that he needed to confess Christ before men, that he needed to preach the truth regardless of the consequences, that he couldn't fear men, ever fear men, that he would preach the truth regardless of the consequences. He had all the politicians mad at him. He had the queen mad at him. He had the queen of England mad at him. He had everybody mad. The Anabaptists were mad at him. Archbishop Cramner in England and the Church of England was mad at him. And what did he do? He kept preaching. And he kept preaching. And he kept preaching. And he kept preaching. And when Bloody Mary was executing everybody, he looked at the scriptures and said, It's wrong. It's wrong that a woman should be ahead in the church. It's wrong that she's leading. And so he wrote a book. The first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regime of women. (laughs) Think about that. By the time it got published, though, Bloody Mary was dead and Queen Elizabeth was now on the throne and she read it and it offended her seriously. It not only offended her, but it offended about every other woman of influence and every other woman who read it. Because he said, you shouldn't be in a place of leadership. If you barefoot, pregnant in the kitchen. (laughs) That wasn't that bad, but they made him have enemies everywhere. But every week he kept preaching and preaching and preaching. And when he finally died and they went to bury his body, this is what they pronounced. Here lies one who feared God so much he never feared the face of man. That is so good. Oh, I wish I could hear that said of me after I die. But I would also like to have it said of you, each one of you, when you die. All of us should have that said of us, right? 
I mean, don't you think it would be kind of a normal Christian legacy that every Christian would not fear men, but fear God? Don't you think that's normal? It is normal. It's normal. But somebody says, I do fear man. I don't always stand up for the truth. I can't even remember the last time I shared the gospel with anybody. What about me? Second point, be warned. If you deny Christ, he will deny you before the angels of God. Look at verse 9. But he who denies me before men. Now the word deny means to reject, refuse, to admit something, to disown. You don't tell people you're a follower of Christ. You don't stand up for the truth. As a believer of Jesus, you don't share the gospel with those who are headed for hell. It's the same word used here to describe Peter's three-time denial of Christ before unbelievers. You know, maybe you're at school and you're having lunch. And, you know, there's that perfect opportunity. They're all talking about, one's talking about their partying, another their drunken fest, another sports. It gets around to you and you say, interesting weather we've been having lately. Oh, that's good. That's good. You know, you're there at lunch with a coworker, and he's just dumping all of his problems on you. Just his marriage, his job, his finances. And, you know, you know that the answer to his problems is Jesus. Oh, good. Yeah, we've got three people who's brave enough to say it even in the church. <laughs> Jesus. And so when he's unloading on you, you just say, oh, it's so bad. Yeah, a lot of people that way. You know, and you could just, if you could look in the spirit realm, you'd probably see the Holy Spirit whacking you in the back of the head. <laughs> say something, say something. Jesus warns you, if this is the pattern of your life, Look at verse 9, the middle of verse 9. He who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And I think it's pretty easy with that to, to understand what that means. It means the exact opposite of being confessed. It means Jesus is going to reject you, disown you, say he doesn't know you before the holy angels of God. In other words, you're going to go to hell. Why? Because you have proved by your unwillingness to confess Christ before men that you love him. Now, I know when I say things like this, there's some people are out there that kind of head starts tilting like, well, wait, stop. There's a little problem here, apparent contradiction, a paradox that uh, people look at. uh, uh, Jesus did a lot of stuff like this. You know, for instance, when he said, unless you sell all your possession, you can't inherit the kingdom. Unless... You give up everything you own unless you hate your father and mother. You cannot be my disciple. And you're thinking, how does this work? How does this work? I mean, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, right? I mean, he is speaking to those he calls his friends in verse 4. He's not speaking to the religious leaders of the crowd yet. He's speaking to his disciples in the midst of them, granted, but he's addressing them specifically. And so if you're a believer and you're saved and you're justified and you're made perfect and you have Christ, you know, perfect righteousness imputed to you and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, then why would Jesus tell the disciples, those who are following him, 
If you make it a habit of denying me, you're going to go to hell. I mean, that is a problem, isn't it? And so this week at dinner, I asked my kids. I said, so tell me, what's the answer? Now, it took me about, usually we kind of have this pecking order thing in our family. First, I asked Mark and then Nate and then Leah. So it kind of goes up, you know, because you know, the older ones have a little bit more time to learn. But Mark got it right after a couple questions. The answer is this. Not all who profess to be Christians who follow Jesus outwardly are really saved. Think about Judas. He followed Jesus, didn't he? He went through the motions. He went out and shared. He went out and did the miracles. He was with Jesus for three years. The ultimate traitor. Just because you come to church, just because you call yourself a Christian, just because you have a lot of Bible knowledge, just because you have some morality does not mean you're saved. And Jesus isn't saying, if you confess me, then that will earn your salvation. You confess me on a regular basis, that will give you enough brownie points for me to save you. He's not saying that. What he is saying is, is the fact that you regularly confess me before men demonstrates saving grace in your life. When God saves you, he changes you into a what? New creature, right? Old things pass away, not confessing Christ, and all things become what? New. Therefore, as an unbeliever, you didn't confess Christ. As a new believer, you do. That's normal Christian behavior. Now, it's true. All of us deny Christ at times, like Peter. But those should be the exception and not the norm. If you look in your life and... The exception is to share Christ. I mean, everybody can accidentally speak of Jesus periodically. (laughs) Then Jesus has something he wants to tell you. You are not his. I mean, that's what the text says. You know, let's say that, let's say you went into the desert, you know, because you heard that the desert was, had some beauty there and you thought, You know, I've never been to the desert. I'm going to go to the desert. And you go there, and just as you begin to approach, there's dark clouds, and it rains, and rains, and rains. And you're sitting in your car with your windshield wipers going, you know, looking, and it's just dumping and dumping and dumping. And all day, finally, you get fed up, and you turn around, and you come home. Now, would it be fair to say, when people say, well, how was your trip to the desert? Man, I'm never going back there. It rains all the time. The guy said, well, what? It's like a rainforest with no vegetation, just mud. (laughs) Because everybody knows that rain in the desert, though it happens, though it happens rarely, is the exception. The true nature of the desert is dry aridness. Anybody who lives their life and shares Christ once a day doesn't make them a rainforest. You know, every time, you know, periodically you might happen to share the gospel. That doesn't make you a rainforest. It needs to be a pattern in your life. You need to see 
Christ being shared in your life. And granted, there's times when you just don't get opportunities. But if you look at your life and you're mostly dry and you rarely rain, then you're a desert. You're not the jungle. You're not the rainforest. And this is what Jesus is saying. Listen, some of you are fearful. Some of you are wondering if you should walk away right now. Get out of here. Kind of join yourself with a crowd or join yourself with the religious leaders. Listen, you make it a habit of denying me before men. I'm going to deny you. That's the way it is. C.H. Spurgeon commenting in this text, examine that attitude of yours, which you suppose to be neutral and see how Christ regards it. And then ask yourself whether you can be satisfied to remain in it any longer. End quote. Look at your heart. Look at your life. And I think a lot of people, if they did, they would just say, you know, I need to get saved. I don't love God. I'm just going through the religious motions. I need to quit lying to myself. Third, be encouraged. Jesus forgives those who sin against him. Look at verse 10. Everyone who speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him. Now, just stop there and just you can ridicule Christ. You can mock Christ. You can use his name as a swear word for years and years and just revile Christ left and right. And if you humble yourself, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will save you. You may be out there sitting there thinking to yourself, Jack, you don't know how many times I've sinned. I mean, I've used Jesus's name like a drill sergeant for years I was a drill sergeant. I only used it in a negative way, in a swearing way, in a profane way. I used to get together with my friends. We used to just mock Christ and Christianity. But what does the text say? He's willing to forgive you. But another says, I used to laugh at Christians. I used to deny the resurrection. I used to be involved in a cult. We specifically repudiated Christ. We tried to destroy the church like the apostle Paul. Christ is willing to forgive you. He's willing to forgive you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You could do it right now. He'll save you right now. You haven't sinned too much. Your sins aren't too great. He loves you. He'll forgive you. You sin against Jesus. He'll forgive you. You can still be saved. But fourth, be warned. Blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Look at the middle of verse 10. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. Now just stop there. Do you know what blasphemy is? Blasphemy is to speak against, to dishonor, to bring reproach upon, to revile, to defame either the person of God, the character of God, the works of God. You do that. That's called the blasphemy which tells us that the Holy Spirit is God. Here again, an active participle is used, thankfully. It's not saying if you've ever done this one time, it's over for you. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is if this is the pattern of your life, to speak against the Holy Spirit, you're going down, way down. And it's going to be hot down there. Heretics deny that the Holy Spirit is a person. They say the Holy Spirit is just uh, 
impersonal force like uh, electricity. Really. You know, the only way you can believe that is to deny the truth of the Bible. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is wise, has understanding, gives counsel, has knowledge, knows the mind of God, can be grieved, quenched, lied to, gives gifts, strives with men, teaches us, brings things to our remembrance, bears witness, convicts people, speaks to people, calls people, leads people, instructs us, intercedes for us when we pray, can be sinned against and blasphemed, among many other things. And believe me, you can't do that to electricity. If you don't believe me, just go home, undo a light bulb from a light socket, look in that light socket, and revile that electricity. <laughs> it's not going to be offended. Or you can just go up and speak to, you know, your duplex receptacle. And say, I hate you. <laughs> it's not, it's feelings are not going to be hurt. But you can sin against the Holy Spirit. But what is the consequence of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Look at the end of verse 10. It will not be forgiven him. This is why blaspheming the Holy Spirit is often referred to as the unpardonable skin. A very scary topic if you want to go to heaven. To think there is some sin that you could commit which would guarantee your damnation in hell is a scary thought. I mean, just imagine you're five years old. Your parents invite you into the living room to have a meeting. They sit you down and they say, you're five now. It's time to be responsible. We want you to make your bed every morning and pick up all the dirty clothes on the floor. And if you ever miss one time, we're getting rid of you. <laughs> we're taking you to the adoption agency. And we're disowning you. You'll never see us again. And it'll be over. Do you understand that? <laughs> now, that would be a lot of pressure. A little five-year-old. Okay. You know? You don't get the next morning. It's like military. You could bounce it, you know. But think about the pressure that would cause. Well, that's how a lot of Christians feel. When they don't understand the unpardonable sin, they kind of feel like, what is it? You know, I leave one sock on the floor and ah, I'm disowned by God. I've had a lot of people through the ages come to me and say, oh, Pastor Jack. I mean, this has happened even I remember just getting out of seminary and, you know, people asking me, I think I committed the unpardonable sin. I always ask them, what is that sin? And how many times have you committed it? And usually what they're really saying is, is I did this big, bad thing in my life and I don't think God can forgive me for it. And I think it might be the unpardonable sin. I never had anybody explain to me in any detail what the sin was. And some commentators think that we can't even know what it is. There's actually seven different interpretations for what the sin is. Now, no, we're not going to go into all of them. I'll give you what I think is the right interpretation and then maybe a close and related second or principle that can be derived from it. But here it is. What is the unpardonable sin? I think the unpardonable sin is this. If you were alive when Jesus was alive on earth and was doing miracles and you attributed the miracles of Jesus to Satan, you would be committing the unpardonable sin. Now, if that's true, you're safe. 
because Jesus isn't here in his humiliation. He's not doing any miracles. And you can't attribute to Satan because he's not here doing miracles. <sighs> Turn to Matthew chapter 12. I'll show you why I believe this. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verse 22. This is a different context, but very similar from the one we're looking at in Luke. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man in verse 22 of Matthew 12. This miracle is attributed by the religious leaders in verse 24. Jesus says those who are not with him will be scattered and judged. Verse 31. He then says that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Notice he says, um, therefore, verse 31, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Uh Uh-oh. But notice that in that instance, he heals the demon-possessed man, it's attributed to Satan, and then comes blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus did his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, and to attribute those miracles to Satan is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Turn over to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Again, a different context from our passage. Jesus is in his hometown. Mark 3, verse 22. As he's in his hometown, word has gotten to the leaders in Jerusalem that Jesus is casting out demons. They don't like that because it's giving Jesus press and they don't want him to have press. They want to disqualify him. So they come from Jerusalem and they accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. This is a common thing they did. They got together and said, okay, he's obviously casting out demons. We can't deny it. Everybody sees it's happening. The people's lives are radically changed. In some cases, the demons even cry out and Jesus speaks to them and casts them out. And so we know that he's doing it. We can't say that he's doing it by the power of God because if he's doing it by the power of God, we're in trouble because he's saying we're hypocrites and on our way to hell. So what are we going to say? Well, let's tell everybody that he's doing these things by the power of Satan. So this is the greed upon thing. That's why it appears over and over in the gospels. So... They accuse him in verse 22, and after that, Jesus defends himself. And then in verses 28 through 30 of Mark 3, we read this. Truly, I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin, because they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. Notice he even explains what the sin is. He has an unclean spirit. Attributing the miracles Jesus was doing to Satan or a demon residing in Jesus. That was the unpardonable sin. So now turn back to Luke chapter 11. um, Not 12, but 11 verse 14. Remind you of things long past. In Luke 11:14 we learn that Jesus was casting a demon out of a man. We then learn in verse 15 that those who were present, the religious leaders, we come to find out attributed this to Satan, Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. 
Jesus then defends himself. Jesus then speaks to the crowd. Jesus then is invited to lunch. Jesus then exposes the hypocrisy of the religious leaders again, not only publicly, but now privately. And it's our text is just a few hours after 1114. And it's the first time Jesus has been able to speak directly to his disciples after being accused of doing miracles by the power of Satan. And he tells them the same thing. You blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's unforgivable. So we have the same kind of miracle, the same false accusation, and the same response in all three instances And to me, that's a pretty good case for blaspheming the Holy Spirit is attributing the miracles of Jesus to Satan. However, there's another good interpretation that could be actually a principle that we could take from this and that really applies to us since the unpardonable sin, um, if that's what it is specifically, could not be committed. There still is, in a way, an unpardonable sin. And it relates also directly to the context. If you look at verse 8 of our text in Luke 12, it speaks of confessing Christ before men. We just talked about it. In verse 9, of not denying Christ before men. Um, And the offer of forgiveness of those who sin against Christ, verse 10. And then after that, in verses 11 and 12, giving um, testimony to Christ, Verse 11 and 12. And so we see in the very near context of Jesus' statement, this whole idea about confessing Jesus. And some commentators have said that what's going on here is Jesus is saying that if you reject me in my earthly ministry, it's okay, I will forgive you. But if you reject the witness of the Holy Spirit when the gospel is preached after I'm gone, you'll be damned to hell. Well, in a way that's true, but it just doesn't fit because Matthew, Mark, and Luke make it clear that these people were committing the unpardonable sin. So it wasn't something that just could happen in the future. They were doing it then. So that doesn't work. However, there is still a principle. And the principle is this. The Holy Spirit does testify through the gospel to the person of Christ. And if you reject that truth enough, there is a point of no return. And then your repeated ongoing rejection becomes the unpardonable sin. How do we get that? How do we get that? Well, here it is. Um, Let's just say for a second that you're, uh, we use the desert again. You're hiking in the desert. And uh, you come upon this huge chain link fence. It says electric. It's got barbed wire on the top. If it was in Idaho, it'd be barbed wire, but barbed wire at the top. And there are signs about every 20 feet which say, warning, extreme danger. I mean, would fit really good in a youth group. Extreme danger. Top secret military street, you know, staging area, anti-human personnel landmines on the other side of the fence. No trespassing. Now, okay, 
Does the military also post maps on that fence? So if you did happen to crawl over the fence or cut through it, go under it, you would know where to step without getting blown up? No, they, they don't, they don't include that. Why? Because the warning is sufficient. If you go over the fence, you deserve to be blown up. Well, Jesus is saying, here is the truth. I am the Messiah. You need to believe in me. You reject me, you take a step on the other side of the fence. Every time you reject me, you take another step. And there is a point at which you get blown up. There's a point when you can't be saved anymore. That's what he's saying. Now, I know what you're thinking. How many times do you get to reject him? That is not the question. The question is, don't go there. Believe Jesus today and don't leave here thinking, I wonder how many more times I can reject the gospel. Still come back to Calvary and get away with it. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 6 says that there is a point at which it is impossible to renew people to repentance. They've, they've been exposed to the truth so thoroughly and have rejected so many times that it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. That's what God says. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26, it tells us the same thing. There are those who refuse to submit to Christ long enough that all of a sudden there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. Think about that. That is scary. In 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 20, it speaks of those who heard the truth, who started following the truth, who started associating with believers, and then they turned away from the truth back to their sins and the metaphors that are used are as a dog returns to its vomit, which is pretty gross. Or after a sow that has washed returns to wallow in the mire. And then Peter says that their rejection of the gospel is so complete that their last state becomes worse for them than the first. Now think about that. Their last state, what is worse than being an unbeliever? Being an unbeliever beyond the hope of redemption. That is the last state. An unbeliever that is beyond the hope of redemption. And that is what the Bible teaches. There is a place of no return. Now I know some people come to church and come to church faithfully. And in their mind they're thinking, you know, I know I'm not a Christian. I'm pretending to be a Christian. But I'm going to give my life to Christ in a month. As soon as I secure this huge business deal, which it takes a little bit of unethical business practice, it's going to make me a ton of money. And as soon as I make that money and I get it in the bank, then I'll give my life to Jesus. Or as soon as I find my wife, I don't want all these regulations telling me who I can and can't marry from the Bible. So let me get my wife and then I'll get religious. Or I'll find my husband, and then I'll get religious. Or I'll first give my years to the cruel one, and after I've sinned myself into the grave almost, you know, right before they kick me in, I'll say, help me, Jesus, and fall in. <laughs> I, you, know, you laugh, but the, you hear testimonies. If you're here during baptism night, you hear this stuff. And some of you 
have had this experience where you knew you needed to come to Christ. You knew you were headed for hell. You knew you needed to be saved, but you wouldn't do it because you wanted your sin. You want to hold your sin just a little bit longer. I want a little bit more control. I'll, I'll, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. I'll do it later. Well, there is a point at which you rust into unrepentance. You're beyond the point of no return. You step on the landmine and God says, it's over. People can share with you until you're blue in the face. I will not save you. It's impossible to renew you to repentance. There no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins. Your last state has become worse for you than the first. Now, I don't know when your last chance is, but I know this. If you believe Jesus today and get saved, you'll never have to worry about it. Every time you reject the gospel and refuse to turn from your sins and believe in Jesus to give him control over your life, you're taking a step in danger. And so if I was you, that's your position Right now, I would give your life to Christ. I would trust in Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. I would just, right now in your pew, call out to Christ to save you, to change you, to forgive you, to make you a new creature. Give him your life, and then you don't have to ever worry, because he'll keep you from the other side of the fence. Four, five, be encouraged. The Holy Spirit will help you when you are persecuted for Christ. This is kind of fun. Look at verse 11. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, just stop there. Notice Jesus isn't speaking of being tried um, just for, you know, secular reasons, but for being a Christian. They're his witnesses. He's talking to his disciples here. Remember, he's already addressed their worst fear, right? They're, he's already said... They may kill you. So that was like the worst thing. The worst fear is I'm going to die. Then maybe the second worst fear is, is what if they arrest me? What if they try me in secular courts? What if they try me in the synagogue because I'm a Christian? What about that? Look at the middle of verse 11. Do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You know, many have plucked this verse out of context. You know, there's the guy who says, well, I don't need to prepare for my sermons because the Holy Spirit gives me a word. I mean, maybe some of you have been to that church. Where the guy just has this idea that, you know, I just get up there and God gives me the gift of gab and I just start speaking and talking some religious speak. (laughs) And you know what? That just doesn't cut it with God. Second Timothy 2.15, which any Awana kid will tell you, tells us to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God as workmen who don't need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. You need to work at studying the Bible. You need to be diligent in studying the Bible. You need to be approved to God when studying the Bible. You need to cut the Bible straight accurately with precision or you're sitting. There is no option for teachers of God's word and preachers of God's word to not study. You have to do it. You have to do it. 
And believe me, Jesus isn't contradicting Paul. The Holy Spirit, who is working in Jesus' life, isn't contradicting the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write what he did here. That's not what Jesus is saying. Just don't worry about studying. God will just give it to you and it'll be great. No. And other people have taken this verse and said, well, the Holy Spirit, what it really means is the Holy Spirit is going to talk to you during the day and, you know, give you direction all day, a little direct revelation, you know, give you sensings and feelings and intuitions. And then the Holy Spirit is constantly going to talk to you so that you will know um, the mind of God and give you direction all day long. No, Paul describes those two as visions inflated without cause by our fleshly mind. Jesus is talking about times when you can't prepare. When you can't prepare. And all of a sudden you find yourself in a trying situation. Either needing to defend Christ or defend the truth or defend the gospel. That's what he's talking about. You know, if they arrest you, you don't know what they're going to ask you or when they're going to arrest you. And so you may get all of a sudden brought in this situation where all of a sudden you're on trial and jesus is just saying you know relax chill you know cool your jets i mean you know in effect he said no it's okay i realize that you can't always you know prepare for everything that's happening it's okay the holy spirit's going to come to your rescue and in those times we'll teach you what you need to say I mean, every believer who makes it their continual habit of life to share the gospel with people has experienced what Jesus is talking about here. I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, maybe it's not fair for me because I studied the Bible for a living. But before that, you know, you're out there, you're sharing Christ with somebody you think, you know, I'm going to share Christ with this person. I'm going to share Christ with this person. And so... You start talking and they say, I'm an atheist. And you know why I don't believe Christianity? And then they just start laying into Christ. They lay into the Bible. They lay into the gospel. And all of a sudden you start speaking. You start quoting these verses. You think, I didn't even know I had that verse memorized. You ever have that happen? It's like, man, good argument. Um, (laughs) Things are coming out, you know? You're thinking, wow. And then afterwards you go to talk to a friend and you say, yeah, I talked to this atheist guy. And you can't even remember what you said. You can't even remember the verse reference now. Before you just quoted it, it's just like, whoa. Well, that's what Jesus is talking about. And don't confuse that with receiving direct revelation from God. What's happening is, is the Holy Spirit is taking God's word, which you've been exposed to, which you've read, which you've learned, which is buried under a thousand television programs in your mind. He's doing excavation. He's unearthing it bringing it up to the surface and for some of you it's a long dig and brings it out and says do you remember this one and then you speak forth you speak forth you tell people things when normally you were never that eloquent you were never that scholarly you were never it's like who was that i've had that happen so many times to me i think man i wish i could do that all the time that actually happens when I'm preaching sometimes. Things come out. I think, man, you know, sometimes my wife shows me a quote. I said, who said that? They said, you did. Oh. Um, <laughs> I was talking to somebody after the, the service 
Um, they told me a story. They said I could share it. I asked them. They said, I was at work this week and, uh, there was this guy who was a little scary looking. He was big and, you know, had some body piercings and, and things. And, and, um, I was thinking, I need to share Christ with this guy. But he said, I totally chickened out. <laughs> he said, no, um, I want to live to see tomorrow. I have a wife, a child, you know, those kind of things. So he comes to church this morning and sits down. The guy sits down next to him. And the whole sermon, he was just thinking, I got to talk to this guy after the service. So he told the guy, you know, I'm sorry. I saw you at lunch. I was going to share, but I chickened out. He says, God has a way of rubbing our face in it, doesn't he? (laughs) Oh, that is so classic. But that's it. That's what Jesus is saying. The Holy Spirit, you know, if you can't prepare and you're in one of those situations where you can't prepare, then okay. The Holy Spirit's going to come to your rescue. But don't use this as, well, I need to sleep in, so I'm not going to prepare to do my Sunday school lesson. Or, yeah, I know I'm going to teach in three months. I'm going to wait till the night before and do the crash course, which always produces a crash. I talk to my seminary students about that. Listen, if you don't have your sermon done before Saturday night, you're in trouble. It's hard to prepare in a laxed way and let God speak to you when you're frantic trying to get the, your lesson done. You know, you have a small group and, okay, you're teaching next time. So on your way, you're kind of, you know, it's like texting when you drive. It's very foolish. You know, you're trying to read your book and prepare your lesson on the way. Too late. You've been unfaithful. You've sinned against 2 Timothy 2.15. And so this is not to be confused with receiving direct revelation from God with men who are moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke the scriptures from God. We're not talking about inspiration here. We're talking about the Holy Spirit taking things you've already learned and already been exposed to and bringing them to your remembrance so that you can give God glory. It's also not to say that because the Holy Spirit does this, therefore, you're always going to be acquitted when you're under trial. Now, just because God gets glory, you may still be found guilty and get burned at the stake. If you read Fox's book of martyrs, some of some of those people, men, women, children who are being burn at the stake or tortured to death or whatever their form of execution was said some of the most amazing things in both their trial and right at their death. I mean, things that when you read them, you just think this is amazing. Who could ever think of anything so godly as that? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helping those people out and helping you out, too. But you got to confess Christ to unbelievers if you're going to experience it. And it's good when it happens. You know God has helped you. You know it. You just go, man, thank you, Lord. I could have never done that on my own. People always say to me, I don't know what to say. Just say something. The Holy Spirit will, will help you out. He will help you. Yeah, but I don't have, you know, all 86 Bible verses memorized. Try Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Something like that. Maybe the Holy Spirit might, you know, 
bring to your remembrance a couple more verses that you heard preached or taught in Sunday school or read in your Bible or heard on the radio. I mean, it's supposed to be all in there. I mean, I wonder where it all goes, but it's supposed to be in there. And all those memories you have, all those things you've been exposed to are just free pickings for the Holy Spirit. He'll help you out. So as we leave here today, the two warnings, don't make it a habit of denying Christ before men or you will be denied before the angels of God. Don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And if it's attributing Jesus' miracles to Satan, we're safe. If it's rejecting any witness of the Spirit repeatedly, then it can still happen. And that means today is the day of salvation. Don't reject any more or you could be irrecoverably lost. Encouragement, you can stand up for Christ, for his truth, share the gospel as a regular pattern of your life and know that what's going to happen is, is Jesus in front of all of the holy angels, in front of his heavenly father, in front of the saints of all the ages are, is going to confess you as his brother, sister, joint heir, ruler. That is just incredible. Also know that even if you've sinned against Christ and you've sinned against Christ a lot, he'll still forgive you. You're sitting out there thinking, I can't, I just can't come to Christ. I've sinned against him too many times. That is not the Holy Spirit speaking. That is Satan, the unholy spirit speaking because the Holy Spirit says to you through the word of God, He will forgive you. And third, if you find yourself under trial or in a situation where you can't prepare and you need to speak for Christ, just trust that God will give you what you need to speak at that very hour, at that very moment, so that you will utter what you need to utter for the glory of God and the testimony of Christ. Those are great things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we were able to just to learn from the text, the three encouragements, the two warnings. I pray that all of us would be faithful to be witnesses for you in all that we say and all that we do, that our lives would be a testimony to the world, that we are followers of yours. Father, if there's anybody here who's never given their life to Christ, may they do that now. May they understand that they are sinners, that you are a holy God. May they understand that Jesus right now is willing to forgive them right this very moment. That if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. Father, help all of us to confess you your truth to the world of unbelievers that more sheep might be brought into your sheepfold and that we might be honored by having you confess us before the holy angels of God. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.